And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You are just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge. Wednesday, Bruce Anderson, Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth. All right then, Bruce is in uh, Ottawa. I'm in Scotland. Today, anyway. It's good. It's good. No snow on the ground here. It's either sunny or if you look out 10 minutes later, it's like windy and howling and raining. So it's back and forth. But There's some gales coming, I heard. There I are. I like that they're called gales there. We don't we don't use that term very much here. But, but they're still golfing. Makes sense. They're still golfing out here. And um, I'll tell you, some of the uh, – I, I think this is a special weekend of kind of a university – uh, British University golf clubs uh, competing against each other. It may even be a kind of Cambridge-Oxford thing. I'm not sure, but I've been watching some of the some of the players hit the ball, and uh, I'm telling you, it's like another world. They they hit like the that ball. Feeling that you get watching me play, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, I wish I could hit it like that. That's yeah. it. That that I you know that's a very good comparison. Um. Okay, I'm going to show you. <laughs> you know, for all the talk we do about how so many people trash politicians, almost mm-hmm. doesn't matter their stripe, and we've been saying, you know, come on, you know, if you're ever going to get people convinced to to run for politics, somehow you gotta you gotta admire what they do right, not only when you think they're, you know, they're, they're screwing up. Let me yeah, sh- good luck with that. Yeah, good luck with that. Let me show you the cover. I mean, it is the Daily Mirror after all, but here's the front page of the Daily Mirror. They're, they're talking about Bo- Boris Johnson. They can't get enough of Boris Johnson. He's been gone for months. Look at oh, that. Up a little. Look, oh, I see. Okay. Look at that. Headline. Last chance buffoon. <laughs> uh, you know, he's fighting about something. He's trying to convince Parliament that he didn't uh, have parties during the uh, pandemic. Toast, he soon will be, says the top headline. And then down below it's Johnson hopes to salvage career with dodgy dossier on how to define a party. <laughs> Last chance buffoon. Don't you love that one? I do. I love that you're buying tabloids, old school style, and um, catching up on the I got the, I got the day old one because way up here in the highlands up north, it, you know, the stuff gets doesn't exactly land at the uh, newsstand on on time, but uh, on. nevertheless. Um, okay, last week we had lots of conversation uh, around the China interference story, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and I, you know, I get letters saying it's not interference; it's it's this, it's that, it's Trudeau screwing up, it's Polyev being mean, it's it's whatever. Anyway, whatever it was. A lot of conversation, a lot of talk, a lot of domination of that story in the news agenda. Um, 10 on the Richter scale, probably down to what, seven or eight on the Richter scale this week. I mean, Katie Telford is going to testify. The terms of. I think it's down down in Scotland, but it's still pretty high. On <laughs> is it still pretty high? Here. Okay. I just like in reading what I'm reading, it just seems that the temperature level is being, it's still there, clearly, but it just seems to have been lowered a bit because some of the things are being taken off the table. Will the prime minister's chief of staff testify or won't she? 
Well, she's going to now, but not until like the end of April or something. It could be any time between now and the end of April. Um, David Johnson's terms of reference, what were they? Well, we got an indication of that yesterday and a timetable. It's what, end of May before he needs has yes. to report? Yeah. Doesn't mean he'll take all that time, but it could be that much time. Yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, I, I don't think it's wrong to say, uh, Peter, at all that uh, some air got let out of this. But I, I think I was probably more thinking it literally just got let out of it yesterday, that it had been building up until yesterday into uh, will this be a confidence vote, which was, I think, the government really putting pressure on the NDP uh, to vote with them on the question of whether Katie Telford, the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff, should testify. And I think that the government came to a logical conclusion, which is that um, continuing to push that hard on that point was not helping them convince people that there was nothing to see here. It was having the opposite effect. It was kind of empowering the opposition voices, empowering the skeptics and, and giving more oxygen to this idea that maybe the government does have something to hide. So um, I don't know that they were confident that the NDP were going to vote with them. And at some point, um, especially with um, the, uh, the visit of President Biden, you know, is arriving tomorrow, I guess, um, you know, became clear that it wasn't really a good time to have an election, <laughs> even if that was a good thing to have an election over, which it isn't. Um, and so they had to make sure that that didn't happen. And uh, the only way to make sure that that didn't happen, and I'm not suggesting this is the only reason they did it, is to is take the air out of that and say, yes, yeah, she'll testify. Um, I, I also think that the release of the terms of reference for the special rapporteur, David Johnson, uh, was a helpful step from the standpoint of the government and also just for reasonable people who say, well, let's let's move past the epithets and the daggers being thrown one way or the other on this to uh, what are we going to do about it? What does this special rapporteur idea look like in practical terms? And I, I spent a little bit of time this morning looking at um, the terms that were released. And I have to say, I think it's a pretty thoughtful program. Won't solve the question for people who think uh, he's the wrong pick because he's too close to the prime minister. But if you look at the terms of reference, to me, they look well constructed and they they make sense. And it looks like the kind of process that should shine more light on what's been happening and what the government did and why and, and what to think about going next. I don't know. What did you what did you make of the terms of reference and the way the government handled this last couple of days? Well, I mean, the main thing that I thought of on both of these is I understand the terms of reference, why it took this long, because they didn't have them. They were still writing them. I mean, a week ago, they were still trying to look for somebody who would agree to do it. And then they, yeah. I, I assume that person had some discussion about what they'd like to see in the terms of reference before that was filled. So that didn't surprise me. The Telford thing I don't get. I don't understand what they were worried about. I mean, as you've mentioned before, you know, Katie Telford is, you know, this isn't her first rodeo. She's been around the block a few times. She understands politics, obviously, but she also understands those committee hearings. So she's been in a few. Um, so what was the, 
what was the issue? Were they just like playing for time or, or what? Why why would did that get stretched out so far? Do you think? Uh, I suspect that, uh, and I don't know for sure, but I suspect that the the main reason was the number of questions that you could get asked that for which the only uh, possible answer is I can't answer that question. Um, was a scenario where the government said this isn't going to um, this isn't going to solve anything. It is going to empower those who think that the government's trying to hide something rather than um, kind of advance the issue. Uh, and it's you know it's political theater uh, that the opposition party or the conservatives anyway wanted, and bad political theater from the standpoint of of the government. Um, now. It, it will probably still be the case that she'll answer that question that way or answer a number of questions that way, which is that there are reasons why I can't answer that. And, and this is, uh, here's what those reasons are. I've generally been of the view, especially since I think the prime minister didn't do a very good job of handling this issue right out of the gate, uh, that the government just needs to spend a little bit more words explaining to people what the challenge is of not revealing sources or methods or uh, the fact that you can get intelligence from intelligence agencies, but then you still have to weigh whether or not what you're being told is absolutely true or plausible, possible. And uh, all of that becomes hard to do in the you know, under a political spotlight um, uh, with suspicions of partisan agendas kind of playing in the air around it. So I think they thought it would be a bad, bad moment of political theater. And I think ultimately, as with the question of needing a rapporteur and possibly a, a, an inquiry, uh, the government kind of put itself in a situation where it wasn't going to really have any choice. It, it's, people were going to have to answer some questions publicly and probably at that level. Let me go for the long ball here. Why wouldn't... Um... Why wouldn't the prime minister himself say, I'll appear before the committee? I mean, he appeared before the inquiry last year into, into the uh, convoy thing. And most people seem to agree that it was his finest hour you know, in some time, if not in all time, that he handled that really well. Yeah. Um, now, I realize... Uh, uh, you know, a committee hearing is a little different than an inquiry. It's going to be almost certainly very partisan. Um, but he can handle that stuff. So why wouldn't he? I mean, it, if there are security issues, his answer is going to be the same as hers. Can't talk about that. Here's why I can't talk about it. Um, but why not? Why, yeah, I mean, look, I think that that is the right. I mean, I think that if he had done that, when this story broke, had effectively had a, uh, you know, a series of long form interviews where he's sitting down explaining in some detail what the role of the prime minister and the government is when it receives this kind of thing, exactly what it is that the government had underway, where the shortcomings might be, what might also be considered. That all existed in the functioning of government and in the mind of the prime minister, I have no doubt. But 
time and again, I think if if the if the government gets something wrong, it often gets it wrong because there's a kind of a hasty middle of a scrum or coming down a stairway answer to a question that's a little bit too uh, curt and that becomes becomes packaged in a way that uh, creates more challenges for the government down the road. That's what that that's that is what happened here. I remember on the weekend. Uh, there's been a lot of things that happened since uh, since we last talked. I think the uh, the leaker or whistleblower, depending on your point of view, wrote a, an op-ed, wrote a, an opinion piece or a, a piece explaining why they did what they did. And, you know, lots of people will read that and come to different conclusions about it. But my conclusion was that this person said, I had been trying to get the system to do more because of the things that I saw as being threats of foreign interference. And I was frustrated that more didn't seem to be happening. But crucially, I don't think that the cause of that was the Liberal Party wanting to have the help of the Chinese. And I don't think that whatever degree of interference there was had a material effect on the election outcome. Now, there are people who look at at that and say, hallelujah, this person did a courageous thing. I kind of look at it and say, well, in every organization that I've ever known, there are people who wish that the things that they've been recommended recommending were taken more seriously, acted on more swiftly, uh, a bigger part of the agenda of the organization. But that alone isn't um, complaining about that through the media anonymously isn't necessarily whistleblowing it's kind of, it would be characterized as complaining about the decisions of the government if you really believe that there was corrupt intent or if you really believe that there was uh, such dramatic negligence that the election outcomes uh, were in jeopardy then yeah it does rise to that standard but i found it interesting in that piece that that wasn't really the argument that was being made and i i tend to think that the on the journalistic side of things there's a a little bit of a bias to feel like a a leaker is a whistleblower and on the institutional side of things there's a little bit of a bias to think a a whistleblower is a leaker and that's a natural set of biases and I think reasonable people should consume this information and have those questions in their minds rather than just sort of rushing to that's a leaker or that's a whistleblower. Um, you know, in this case, I come a little bit closer to the, if you don't think something was corrupt in its intent, you don't think it amounted to a level of negligence that changed the outcome of an election or threatens the next one, um, then, you know, pushing all of this content out of a newspaper uh, it felt a little bit more like trying to bend the government rather than trying to save the people from uh, foreign interference. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you on that. I, you know, I think um, leaker is the proper term. It's not whistleblower here. I, it would it would be whistleblower if the leaker had said, "There's proof that the prime minister was a traitor." on this issue and here's that proof that's a whistleblower no question about it but in fact in that you know correct me if i'm wrong in that uh, piece he wrote for or she wrote for the globe and mail they made the point 
no one was a traitor here. Yep. And I also don't, uh, the person uh, also said that they didn't think there was um, an impact on the election result. So taking away two of the main cards, right? Um, and so then it becomes a leak. And so they, what, you know, for that person, whoever they are in public service, who feels so strongly uh, about a government's action or inaction that they want the story out, what can they do? Well, I, I, you know, I remember talking to the former clerk of the Privy Council, Michael Pitfield, about this very issue uh, back when he was teaching at Harvard. I went down there to talk to him about a number of things, and including that, what do they mm-hmm. do? What do you do if you're inside and you think a policy or decision on the part of the government is so bad that you've got to get it out there? Uh, and he said, well, there's only one thing you can do. You have to resign and then call a news conference and explain it all. That's your option. That's the appropriate option. Option. So, listen, um, I like leakers. <laughs> I've benefited from leakers over the year uh, as a journalist. So, uh, you know, I, but I'm just, I, I'm kind of laying, well, laying out the options here. I think you'd agree with me um, that, there are some areas of the work of government where people inside an organization, you know, want to influence things a certain way and they speak off the record to journalists to try to get that influence going. And I can look at a lot of those and say, look, they're, you know, if you're in the organization, uh, you might be frustrated by it. Um, but if it doesn't involve breaking an oath of secrecy, if all a person is doing is talking to a journalist about the things that are frustrating to them and, and that journalist then turns that into a bit of a story, I can see that kind of fair ball, all, all of that. And there's a lot of it all the time, always has been, right? How many of those, how many stories only happen because that kind of conversation goes on, but they're not involving um intelligence gathered in the course of uh in the in the context of the security systems of our country where people swear an oath about how they they deal with that and i so i think this this instance of leaking needs to be seen as different in quality from kind of regular fetching about something that you see happening in your department or in the government that you're unhappy with, that you choose to speak a journalist off the record on. I think there's a different quality when you when you take that oath of secrecy with respect to that kind of information. One other thing which I noticed on the weekend, because I was sort of rooting around the, uh, the internet gathering some information on this, is that if you go back to uh, 2021, uh, CSIS uh, put out a document then which described the things that government was doing uh, across different agencies to explore, investigate, monitor, react to foreign interference efforts. And in that document, um, it's a pretty interesting list of things. It's not nothing. It's not like you could look at that from 2021 and say, well, the government's been hearing about this, but not doing anything. Instead, what you'd get if you read it was the government's been doing a lot of things. And even the report of the Rosenberg Committee of senior officials said 
there's a lot of things being done, but they said there are a couple of things that we should change and improve upon. You know, extend the uh, purview to the pre-writ period. Uh, make sure that we're reporting more regularly to people. Make sure that the threat that triggers a, a report publicly is the threat level is lower than uh, is the election in jeopardy. Um, so there was an active conversation about whether well, there were active uh, measures in place and there was an active conversation about how to improve it. Uh, the Rosenberg report, uh, for all that everybody uh, who criticized it wanted to focus on the relationship between Morris Rosenberg and, and the Trudeau Foundation, said, here's some more things that we need to do. Um, and so if you look at that combination of evidence against the whistleblower leaker, uh, it, it sort of suggests, well, maybe they weren't sufficiently giving credit to the government for doing some things in this area. Now, that doesn't solve the re the fact that the prime minister didn't handle this question well from the beginning. And that's what we've been talking about um, for a couple of weeks now. And I think to some degree, that's why we've been talking about it for a couple of weeks is that his first answer was, this is a big problem, but we can't talk about it. It's not going to work. No. Um one, uh, I'll give I'll just give one thing, uh, one puzzle that I have about the terms of reference. Um, it's basically restricted to the 2019 and the 2021 elections, right? I don't understand why they didn't include the 2015 election and possibly even the 2011 election. Um, go back a decade. Look at them all. What were the issues? Because there's no doubt that China was... Uh, involved and on the radar of a number of the intelligence agencies early in that, uh, you know, 2010, 2013 uh, um, period. Uh, I just, I'm, I'm just surprised that they just restricted it to the two. I'm sure maybe time had something to do with it or the amount of work uh, involved in going through all the elections. It just seems to me it would have been a fairer balance, a, a better sense of, of where we were. Uh, both intelligence-wise and politically-wise. Uh, politically um, last point on this before we take a break and move on to the uh, visit from Joe Biden coming up uh, tomorrow, I guess, uh, to Canada. Um, before we move on, do you think this in some ways will be like the whole convoy issue last year where now that there is a process in place to investigate all this, things are going to die down until such time as there are either public elements to the uh, Johnson inquiry or until a decision is made. Are we, uh, are we going to like kind of move on now to, <laughs> to other scandals or other issues or other policies? What do you think? I actually think so. I don't think there's um, like as as concerned as I am about the efforts by foreign and some domestic players to meddle in um, kind of normal elections and, and influence them, I actually do think that um, it's been a productive conversation in the sense of it's it's put some pressure has been added onto the government to do more and to change the the, the approach um, to widen the lens, as I've just said, and to. Um, <laughs> to you know create more sense of awareness of it and and that in turn will help hopefully create better defenses against it 
people will be aware of it. They'll be alert to it. There'll be a kind of a sense of, um, you know, people kind of looking for evidence uh, of interference more than perhaps would have been the case before. And, and that's a healthy thing. But um, I don't think it's got, I don't think there's stuff in this that will be so revelatory and shocking to people that um, it will it will carry that much public interest. I could be proven wrong, but it doesn't feel to me like that. I like the fact that this the work of uh, Mr. Johnson has a time limit on it, and that the result of that work product is going to be well. We're going to maybe change some things in the way that we do them, but those are probably already mechanisms that that exist. Maybe there'll be something added to it, but doesn't feel like that needs to be the case, uh, at least at this point. So I do think that the that there will be days in the course of the months that uh, Johnson is doing his work uh, that will attract a lot of interest in specific instances. But I think on the whole, it won't be um, a, a, a dominant uh, electoral issue at the next out, uh, next election or even a really a prominent issue come this time next year. All right. We're going to move on. Air Force One is on its way to Canada, or will be and in a few hours. it's not Trump Force One. <laughs> it's not that Trump Force One. That might be on its way to Sing Sing or something like that. I don't think they'll send him to Sing Sing. I'll tell you one thing. If, something, if Trump gets indicted in the next couple of days, the last thing Americans are going to care about or want to hear about is the fact that Joe Biden's in Canada. Now, that could be used as a good thing or a bad thing. But it's one of the realities of the next couple of days. But there are real issues that are going to be talked about. We'll talk about them right after this. And welcome back. You're listening to The Bridge right here on Sirius XM, Channel 167, Canada Talks, or on your favorite podcast platform. Or because it's Wednesday and this is Smoke, Mirrors and the Truth with Bruce Anderson, we're also on our YouTube channel. So if you wanted to see the front page of the Daily Mirror that I was holding up, you got to go to the YouTube channel to see it. Um, plus the spectacular Scottish hat that I'm wearing as well. Cap. Whatever. Um, okay. There's a great piece on cbc.ca today by Alex Panetta. Great reporter, great journalist. Longtime Canadian press, uh, Washington bureau chief, now working for the CBC out of Washington. And he kind of sets the stage. Bruce pointed this out to me this morning, and I, it's a well worth the read for any of you. It's a lengthy piece, but it, gives, it really sets the stage for um, what's likely to happen in these next couple of days, at least what's likely to be discussed, and some of the tensions that exist within uh, the relationship on a number of fronts and yet at the same time, of course, we're going to witness a lot of glad-handing and hugging and state dinners and, and all of that. It comes with the territory as well. Um, to you, Bruce, what's, what's the key part of this trip, other than it's just simply taking place? Um, you know, that friendship between, you know, our two countries, in spite of, you know, moments of tension around certain issues. What uh, what do you see as the big moment in this? Uh, well, I think that, um, well, first of all, I think uh, Alex does the best journalism now on the Canada-U.S. relationship, and uh, I love the long-form approach that he takes, and he covers off a lot of 
issues and people should read it on the CBC site if they have a chance and they're interested in kind of knowing some of the context for the Biden-Trudeau uh, um, d- discussions. Second thing I would say is that it is reassuring for Canadians generally uh, to realize that, oh, you know, we've got a relationship with the United States. It's important enough to them that we have this kind of meeting from time to time. Now, I don't I don't tend to buy into the the idea that we have some sort of collective psychosis. Uh, does America, you know, care about us enough? That sort of thing. I, I read the comments of uh, Scotty Greenwood, who's involved in the cross-border uh, business association saying, well, if Canada wants to be taken seriously in Washington, then it needs to be more relevant and bring something serious. I don't really, uh, I, I don't kind of share that point of view. I kind of feel like America is going to do America. Uh, and there isn't really anything that we can do to change that. We can't make Canada be more of a central conversation um, in American life than it than it is now. Um, the best that we can do is have the kind of relationship where the irritants that normally occur, um, you've got neighbors around you, there might be the odd irritant over the life of uh, your relationship with them, um, that those irritants can be discussed and resolved. And sometimes it's, a, I need you to do this, and the other person says, I need you to do that, and that's all good. And uh, I feel like if we look at how relationships in Europe have gone lately. Uh, if we look at the way that this relationship felt when Donald Trump was the president, uh, we're in a better place now. So the irritants that are on our list of here's some things that we would like um, to feel a little bit better about, it's a manageable list. It's not like they're all easy. Um, the safe third country agreement uh which is really a, a policy issue that goes to the heart of um, migrants coming uh, across our border at Roxham Road in Quebec in pretty large numbers. That's something that we care about. Um, I don't know if we're going to get uh, the kind of answers that we want on that. We also care about um, the U.S. treating our participation in the critical minerals market as though we are a very friendly country and a very important producer for the world uh, and the U.S. and its allies. I think those are important issues. I think they fall squarely into the uh, domain of things that if the leaders of two countries can talk through, uh, they can probably find accommodations for each other. And obviously, there are some things that Alex points out in his piece that the Americans care about and uh, will be applying a little bit of pressure on us. So I, I feel like this is a reassuring moment, the fact that we can have these this, this visit. Uh, but I don't think that the logical endpoint is... Uh, all of a sudden, we should be, you know, front and center on the American political agenda. They they have a lot of other things that are going to preoccupy them more than this relationship. Um, there are two things that I'll be watching most closely, and that is the likely request. It's already started in some fashion from the Americans that Canada helps out in a lead role on the Haiti situation. Haiti's a mess. Mm-hmm. We've known that for for years now. Um, but it's really a mess right now. And there's a certain degree of reluctance on the part of Canada to get more heavily involved than it has been because it is such a messy situation. It almost seems like there there is no way out of the mess. Um, 
but the Americans have a problem in Haiti. I mean, they have like zero credibility or, or close to it. And they recognize that given the history. Uh, and so they want Canada involved. And there's a reluctance, as I said, on that. And it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. The other is in defense spending, and specifically in, in areas that, you know, I, I know you're bored with me talking about the Arctic, but it's an issue. And uh, the Americans are pushing hard on it. And I know Anita Non, the defense minister, wants to help. But uh, there, are, there are technological issues, there are financial issues. It's very expensive to upgrade everything in the Arctic. Um, but if we're going to take sovereignty in the Arctic seriously, and if we're going to be joint partners in the defense of North America from the Arctic, uh, there's, it's a get up and go time. So I'll be interested. I'll be I'll be watching those two uh, areas of interest. I know there's lots more, and there's only so much you can cram into a whatever it is, 36, 40-hour uh, visit on the part of the U.S. president. And and uh, what I said earlier is if something happens to Trump during that time, you can forget about that kind well, of coverage. Well, yeah, I, mean, I think that the, in a way uh, it might be the best of all possible worlds if Trump gets arrested and, and the conversation that happens between Biden and Trudeau is kind of lower profile and more productive in a way. But um, that's maybe just me hoping that Trump gets arrested. The, uh, the, uh, the, you know, on your point, I did think that the prime minister's, the comment that it was attributed by Alex Panetta to the prime minister about Haiti was an interesting one, where he said that the reason that Canada is hesitant isn't that it doesn't see a problem in Haiti, isn't that it doesn't want to help in Haiti, but that certain types of involvement actually have proven not to be helpful. Um and I don't think that quote was intended as a way of saying um, the U.S. has kind of proven uh, that certain kinds of involvement are not helpful. But I think it's a reminder that with a lot of these problems, um, our, our kind of our patience for a full solution is short. Our instinct for an easy sounding solution is strong and and sometimes that easy-sounding solution not only doesn't work, but makes things worse. In the defense question, um, you know, I, I admire your fascination with the equipment um, and uh, want to have more of it. Uh, the government has committed to spending significant amounts more money, not as much as the Americans want, that's for sure. But I do think that taking sovereignty seriously also means especially in the North, means is that about physical defense or is it going to be about a different type of uh, diplomatic effort uh, over time? It's obviously a combination of both, but I feel like there isn't enough money in the world to, um, to sufficiently equip ourselves so that we can protect ourselves against the uh, incursions of... Uh, of uh, of states that want to that might want to take that over, and, and so I think we need to be practical about that too. Which isn't an argument to spend nothing; it's an argument that spending money on equipment isn't necessarily going to provide us with the ultimate solution uh, to protect our sovereignty. Yeah, uh, listen, it's a big topic, and there are many different angles to it. Uh, 
It's mainly about surveillance. And the options on that are, are you know, the technology exists today where we could uh, perhaps be doing more. Get um, some satellites up in the uh, in the air a little bit more quickly. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I've had some people write to me and criticize me for this, saying, oh, you don't really know what's going on up there because there's a lot more than you know. Well, that's possible. Maybe it is. Um, but, you know, I, I've spent a considerable part of my life uh, there, and I... Uh, yeah, I, I do know some things, and uh, I do know that there's a desire on the part of, uh, you know, a lot of people who watch this story that we were more deeply involved than we are right now. Let me read yeah. you something about, you know, you because t- I, I found this interesting, and I didn't realize this. I don't know whether you did. Um, but on this issue of, of, um, of those crossing the border coming into Canada and the Roxham Road and all that, uh, Julia Ainsley is, you know, a pretty good uh, defense reporter for NBC News. Um, wrote a piece online a couple of days ago. Let me read the first two paragraphs. On the snowy border between New York and Canada, the local sheriff's office is calling for the U.S. Border Patrol to put more manpower behind what he calls a growing crisis. The number of illegal border crossings in the area over the last five months is nearly 10 times what it was over the same time last year, and the border crossers are in danger of freezing to death. They're not talking about people going north. They're talking about people coming south. From October 1st to February 28th, about 2,000 migrants crossed the border between Canada and New Hampshire, Vermont, and New York south through the forest, compared to just 200 crossings in the same period the previous year. They're mainly from Mexico. They fly to Canada, and then they come down into the States. It's interesting. I I didn't realize that. I assumed there probably was something, but those are, you know, not insignificant numbers, as we say. This is a big global problem. I mean, uh, you're in the UK now and you see the uh, the mention of the problem as it's being discussed um, in England, uh, the mm-hmm. arrival of boats across the channel, uh, people putting themselves in great risk. And, you know, uh, some of it is um, refugees feeling, is fleeing uh, situations where their lives are at risk and they're being persecuted. Some of it is economic migrants uh, basically saying we're desperate and we, we need uh, to be in a place where there's some more opportunity. And the world doesn't and has been grappling with this for a good long while now. There aren't any or obvious solutions. Um, and and we've seen how nasty and divisive and poisonous the politics can be in the United States. And I'm I'm happy on a, to some degree that that hasn't happened. Uh, in Canada, we did have a pretty tense conversation about 25,000 Syrian refugees not that many years ago. And that was worrying because it's not a very large number of people. And it was obvious that people were uh, were dying uh, in Syria and that we could do more to help. And um, it, it, was a, it was a wake up call for me to realize that we could be in a situation where our politics became quite about that too um and so let's hope we don't we don't get there all right we're almost out of time but i i will give you a minute to talk about the likelihood of your uh, favorite american politician personality billionaire or maybe he's just a millionaire who really knows for sure 
But, I mean, he could be fingerprinted and handcuffed and paraded off to, uh, to wherever, indicted in the next couple of days. Yeah, I can't help but think about this in a way that, um, you know, some people say, well, he, he broke a law with this, it looks like, and, but it was like the, the least law-breaky that he's ever been. And uh, this is going to be the thing that ends up with his fingerprints being taken. And it makes me, reminds me of O.J. Simpson, who um, ended up going to jail for something that was much less um, serious, a crime, I suppose, than uh, the murder of those two people, which he was held civilly responsible for, even though he was acquitted of the criminal charge. Um, and, you know, so I kind of look at the the Trump situation and I don't think, oh, well, I'm disappointed if they only charge him for this. I kind of feel like he, this question of does the law apply to everybody? I think it's a really important question. And I think America can't have it both ways. Can't say we're a city on a hill. We're a country that is a country of laws. We believe that no one is above the law. And, and, uh, and at the same time, say, as uh, the uh, Republican House leader or House leader was saying, Kevin McCarthy yesterday, that you know we should let it go because uh, he's uh, who he is, and uh, people don't want to see him charged. I mean, that doesn't make any sense to me. Does it make sense to you? No, it makes no sense to me. I, the other thing, just on you know. Of all the things he's being investigated for, this is probably the, uh, you know, the the smallest infraction. But it's an infraction nevertheless. The other ones uh, could well end up at the same level, indictments as well. Uh, in fact, it seems almost certain that there's going to be a, kind of a run on indictments against Donald Trump in the next, you know, in the next while, in the next few months. Um, and sometimes these things start small. It was the guy who was convicted after murder after murder after murder for tax evasion died in jail on tax evasion right biggest gangster the americans have ever known at that time so these things you know if he's proven guilty he's proven guilty if it's a you know a, a felony he'll go to jail if it's a misdemeanor he won't on yeah. this one, and then they move on to the next one. Yeah. So there we are. Um, well, okay. it'll be interesting to see if he does fundraise off it the way that it looks like he will, um, and, and how the Republican Party really does deal with it, because they're still caught in this, uh, can we distance ourselves from him without losing the opportunity to win an election? And I don't think they know the answer to that, but I think they should know what the right answer is, which is they should be rid of him and uh, move on. Well, that and uh, a lot of other things we'll uh, find out in the days ahead. Thank you, Bruce. Great to see you. Great to talk to you again. And Bruce will be back on Friday with Chantel for Good Talk. That will also be available on our YouTube channel. Tomorrow, it's uh, your turn, so get your cards and letters coming in. And uh, the Ranter. I think the Ranter is going to talk about AI tomorrow, artificial intelligence. You know, when we talked to Michelle 
Rempel Garner a couple of weeks ago. Um, I mean, we weren't the first to talk about AI, but it does seem that that was well positioned because there's been an awful lot of discussion about AI and uh, whether it needs to be regulated uh, ever since then. And uh, we'll keep that going tomorrow with uh, with the rancher with uh, his take on on AI. All right. Thanks again, Bruce. We'll talk uh, again in, uh, well, 48 hours in your case. I know you'll be busy watching. You'll probably be lined up in the airport road waving big, to Joe uh, Biden. Other big announcement today, I think, from the Fed in the, in the U.S., you know, is inflation cooling enough that interest rates don't keep having to go up? I think for a lot of people, it's a big economic day True. today. Um, and so I'll be watching that too. Yep. Well, it has cooled, but that remains the question. Has it yeah. cooled enough? Uh, all right. We'll talk, uh, we'll talk again in the future. Thanks, Bruce. And thank you for listening. The, uh, the bridge will be back in 24 hours. Mm-hmm.